0: I think growth is capturing the demand for the most part that's already there, whereas brand is creating more demand. There's a brand I worked with for a long time. I I helped them with their early positioning and it's called Bowery. It's an indoor vertical farm out of New York um, and they make packaged salad greens. I can still not buy the packaged salad greens from Bowery because I live in LA and they're not even distributed on the West Coast, but I still love this brand. One of the things early on that the CEO and I had talked about was like, we want to build national awareness. We want to do national media. We want to create demand ahead of our distribution so that when we have a farm on the West Coast and we're available in Whole Foods or your local grocer, there are people who already know about us and are waiting for us to get there. But we also need to like sell through the you know perishable goods that we're bringing to actual stores in the markets where we do distribute and when they first launched it was just new york now they're in a bunch of different markets so there's really interesting like we're going to do national brand and local what you would call like growth or paid acquisition and having that tension of like we're trying to build this big brand for the future and whether it's the content or the pr strategy or that whatever they're doing on a national level, but then on a local level, we're actually going to execute like pop ups and events and couponing or whatever it is, demonstrations in store, which we would never do in a market where we don't exist.
1: Welcome to Ad Creative, a new show from Pencil about the unexpected ideas that have changed the game for DDC founders and operators with a focus on actionable takeaways. My name's Chase Moseni. Thanks for joining us. This week I'm joined by Ariel Jackson marketer in residence at First Round Capital. If you haven't checked out any of their content, they're amazing. Ariel and I dig into a whole host of topics around branding, performance, and how they're supposed to work together. The really interesting thing about Ariel's experience is how she gets to be at the early stages of company building and see what the through lines are between brands and how they're able to build into meaningful products that change the world. Every piece of information Arielle shares here is true gold. I hope you take the time to listen to this and really learn. On top of that, she teaches an amazing course on branding, which we'll link out in the show notes. If you're looking to get better at branding or want to just understand how teams should be working together across functions, this episode is for you. Before we jump into the rest of the show, I wanted to share a little offer that we've cooked up exclusively for our podcast listeners. That's 15% off your first year of any paying plan on pencil with code AC15. Pencil exists to help brands scale their creative production so that they can get to the business of testing more ads and finding new customers. We hope that this offer can help you do that. Now on to the show. Enjoy. Well, I'm really excited to be joined on this episode of Ad Creative with Arielle Jackson. She is the marketer in residence at First Round Capital. She is also my instructor in brand marketing course for tech companies. It was incredible. It's on Maven. Everyone should take it. I'm going to plug it in the show notes as well. Ariel, thanks for joining us. I'm really excited to uh, have this conversation.
0: Well, it's great to see you, Chase. And you were a star student in the last cohort. So it was always nice to reconnect.
1: Oh, wow. That's, uh, I'm going to put a pin in that and put that on my Twitter bio. I would love to understand before we kind of dive into everything else, What does a marketer in residence do at a VC fund?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I had a call earlier today with um, someone who has like a marketing operator title at another VC fund. She does something totally different than me, but I'll tell you what I do. I focus almost all of my time on helping the companies that we invest in with marketing. First Round is an early stage venture firm that focuses exclusively on the first 18 months of company building. So we invest at the seed round, we kind of were the original seed stage investor when Josh Koppelman started the fund a long time ago, and there, now there's like pre-seed and angel funds and all these other earlier earlier funds. But we were the original seed stage fund. Uh, my job is as we invest in a company that might just be an idea, or it might be a prototype, or it might be have a company with some early traction. I help them get all their marketing fundamentals in place and sometimes help them hire their first marketer before they have a marketer. And if they already have a marketer, I kind of supplement that marketer with everything they need to start their business and then to launch it.
1: So it's almost like you have an index of different brand experiences. So for instance, like we talk about a Pencil, one of the you know net benefits we have is we have thousands of brands creative testing data. And so we're able to essentially look at writ large what's happening in the marketplace. And I, I think similarly, that's something you probably have is say like, look, these are what these like, 10 seed stage companies have done over the last X amount of times, so say like the last 18 months, these three, this worked for them, etc. I, and I, I think that's a really interesting thing to say over time, what are the trends that you're seeing? What are the differences you're seeing? So what made you interested in doing that? Because obviously, your work before at Google and Square might have been a little bit different than that. Mm -hmm. What was the kind of impetus to go do a role like this?
0: Yeah. Well, you know how in hindsight, everything is like the perfect story, but really it was very scattered. I'll tell you what happened. So I was at Google. I started my career in product marketing. I studied psychology and human biology, did a master's in psychology, went straight from that to Google, did this APMM program, which teaches you everything you need to know about product marketing. It's an awesome, like, don't get an MBA, but get the experience type two years. And then was at Google for a long time, did a lot of different things, went to Square. My purview was outside of product marketing. Then I ran distribution partnerships, which were, you know, Apple stores selling our products to events, to student ambassador programs, to launching new products, kind of got to do a lot of different things at Square. And then I was, Google was 1400 people when I joined Square was 140 people. When I joined while I was at Square, my husband started a company and, I was helping them when I was on maternity leave, kind of unofficially. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I can't go back to square and work hundred hours or 80 hours a week. Now that this kid is like not in my belly anymore and decided to leave square and go help my husband start up three days a week. And it was seven people. So I went from 1400, 140, seven. And so it was a trajectory kind of like down in size And I realized I really liked working for this seven person company that was just getting started and I could have a lot of impact three days a week because it was small and I got to like do everything. It was really fun. Ran marketing and comms there. The company was acquired by Twitter pretty quickly after I joined and I got a job to run consumer product marketing at Twitter. And I was like, gosh, I just left Square. At this point I had like a one-year-old, I don't know if I want to take a big job like this. And instead I said, you know what? I'm not going to go to Twitter with the rest of the team. And I emailed a bunch of friends who are also early-stage startup founders who I knew from Google and Square and life. And I said, hey, I'm not joining Twitter with the rest of the team. I want to work for other small early-stage companies. Do you need any marketing help? And I sent this email to like five friends. And every single one was like, oh my gosh, yes, that's amazing. And these were all people I'd worked with before. And so that's how I got started. Uh, I started my first project ever as a a marketing consultant, was with Adrian and Carl, who are the co-founders of Seesaw, which is an ed tech company. They got pretty big, uh, helped them position and name the company and just kind of working for my, my friends who I used to work with at Google. During that time, First Round had been the lead investor in my husband's startup. And Josh Koppelman, who started First Round, had been on the board and he's kind of a mentor to my husband. And Brett, who's at first round, he was the original like one person platform team person there, had asked my husband, Hey, who ran, who'd you hire for marketing? Who'd you do? Who did your launch? Like it was really it was successful. We got like a million downloads of an app in a matter of like a few weeks. He said, Oh, I, we didn't hire anyone. Well, we did. My wife worked for us three days a week. And Brett's like, Can I meet her? And so I met Brett and he said, Oh, you're consulting? Will you do a project with us? And we did a project for three months for one day a week where I would help first round companies eight years ago. So that's how I ended up at first round.
1: It's funny the magnetic trajectory life takes when you look back at it. Mm -hmm. It feels like, you know, kind of random atoms exploding across the universe when it's happening. But you look back and like the through line, like this makes sense.
0: Makes perfect sense, right? Yeah.
1: Bigger, smaller, smaller don't want to do this, use the bigger connections to connect with smaller companies. And now uh, I'm essentially do that. I do what my passion is every day for one of the special seed stage uh, funds that, uh, that exists like the OG of seed stage funds, essentially.
0: Yeah. It's awesome. My job now, I work half time at first round, so I help their companies. Mm-hmm. And then I spend some time teaching like the class that you took and doing some other like teaching like things. And um, I do some consulting projects with companies outside of first round, but my priority is usually helping the first round companies first. And Maven actually is a first round company that I helped position the yeah. name and all of that. And they wrote me into teaching. I
1: DM the, the, uh, the founder after we finished and I was like, Hey, Maven's sick. Thank you. <laughs> it's like, Yes. Uh, that's all that was that was the, that was our our dm uh conversation <laughs> but uh, i think that's really um i would love to know so you said something i think is really fascinating kind of drilling back and pulling back to your to what you studied i just had a conversation with another interview guest and she focuses all on psychology for for brands so you work with a lot of technical people and they're trying to essentially build something from something that they have kind of drilled in on psychologically that's going on in the market. Maybe they don't understand the personal side of it, but the technical side like, hey, this doesn't exist and it needs to because it makes me angry and I think it makes other people angry. they do some you know market sizing and figure out, okay, this is a big opportunity, et cetera. Like what do you find is the thing that has helped you most? in being able to help these brands and, and companies start? Is it the psychology background where you're digging into kind of what actually motivates brands or is it having worked at some of these bigger companies and seeing how users interact with products
0: Yeah, and
1: how, how you can actually like leverage that to build a brand from there?
0: I actually think it might be a third thing, which is having, I now worked with hundreds of companies And once you worked with hundreds of companies and you have like the background and like, I'm like a nerd about advertising and marketing. Like I I really nerd out on like the intersection of psychology and advertising. This is something that I get made fun of. I don't have a Spotify premium account because I want to hear the ads. I like the ads. Mm. I watch the Super Bowl. I do not watch any of the Super Bowl, but I will watch all the ads. Like I just like this stuff. And so I've always been this. So,
1: way. what was your? Did you like the Coinbase? Did yeah, you like the Coinbase? I, I did. Kind of, I thought that yeah, was amazing. It was pretty epic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It was amazing.
1: Yeah. It was super brilliant.
0: It was like the winner of last year's Super Bowl. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I like that stuff. Like, I, there are people who pay not to listen to that stuff. Like, I would pay to listen to that. And so, there's seeing a lot and being a consumer of a lot of this stuff. I read a lot about it. You get a. I don't know. It's like if you read a lot of books about a topic and then you know a lot, it's kind of easy to help other people learn that thing. So I've always been a consumer of this. Like when I was a little girl, I remember watching like Mattel Barbie ads and stuff on TV and being like, they make that Barbie house look really good on this ad, but I've seen it in real life and it's not as good as they make it in that. Like even as a little kid, I was paying attention to ads. Yeah. Uh, the, the skip it. Remember the skip it? Like It was like this thing where you like (laughs) popped and you skipped over it and they made it look so fun in the ad. And then like I got it and I played with it for like not that long and it wasn't that good. And so there was always this thing about like reality and expectation setting and the psychology and like the desire and then the fulfillment of that desire and expectation. Like I've always been really interested in that whole area. Uh, I think some of the psychology background helps in two ways. It helps in one way, which is understanding your users and their motivations and how to message to them. And it helps in another way, which is like understanding founders. And I meet with a lot of people one-on-one. I talk to a lot of people one-on-one. I almost became a therapist. So like these one-on-one coaching sessions is probably why I like going to podcasts too. Like it's fun to talk to people. Yeah. I like knowing what motivates people. I have had multiple sessions with founders where I'm like the marketing person helping them on behalf of first round. And the founder and I have some kind of like big epiphany or connection. I've had a few founders cry, like it's intimate. And I like that element of like understanding not just what makes your customer motivated to try your product, but what made you motivated to start this in the first place. And like, it's sort of on two levels. But and so I guess in short, I think, there's a lot of like pattern matching and seeing what works and what doesn't. And then anti-pattern matching, like, Oh no, I've tried that three times. It doesn't work. But in your case, it might work because this thing's different or here's how these guys did it. And here's what we could learn from that. But for you, I would tweak it this way. Yeah. So yeah, like the experience and interest and maybe a little psychology.
1: So first, how did you feel about all the hamburgers that you would go and get after seeing the commercials? Because that was like, that's the biggest letdown in the world. Seeing like a Big Mac and it's, you know, six inches.
0: Yeah. So I stopped eating meat when I was 10.
1: (laughs) Oh, because of that?
0: No, I went to a ranch camp where they like slaughtered their own cows and you could like watch it as a science experiment. And I went and it shocked me and I never ate cows again since I was 10. But now I'm back on chicken and fish. So I'm not a vegetarian. But yeah, so the hamburgers, I don't know, like I had impossible burgers once or twice recently and yeah but yes the hamburger ads are you know how they make those they, they're not even real food and like the food artists place every sesame seed on that bun. Like you've seen the behind the scenes of those ads. It's amazing. They make it look amazing and it's such a disappointment when you try it. I mean I guess I haven't tasted it in a long time.
1: Yeah. Don't don't do it. <laughs> My Crohn's wants you not okay. To Something you brought up right now about founders and, and spending time with them I spend a lot of time with founders as well. And like, I think there are a few through lines. I'll I'll hold mine to hear about yours. What do you think kind of the through lines are with founders in general? And the second part of that question is, how often do you feel like they understand or respect marketing?
0: I don't know if I could make like so many generalizations, but I mean, I'm married to an ex-founder. I have a lot of friends who are founders and then I work with founders. So I spend a lot of time with them. Generally, I think they have to, have a little bit of um, like reality distortion to start something. When you're most likely going to fail, you have to have a little bit of risk taking interest, which I lack that. So I, I don't think I would be a good founder. So the risk taking, a little bit of like reality distortion of like, well, everyone fails, but I'm gonna win. Like a, like a self sense of can do it, and then a sense of humility to learn. I don't know everything it's going to take to run this business and make it successful, but I'm willing to learn. So a little bit of grit also and resilience. And then one of the qualities that I think really like the good founders have is magnetism. You know, like I can convince a bunch of other smart people to join me when all I have is like an idea. <laughs> like that's amazing. People talk about storytelling a lot, but I I think it's beyond that. It's like magnetism. It has to do with like charisma plus storytelling, plus humility, plus like some EQ stuff. And there's founders who have more and less of this, but Those are some of them. Horsepower too. Like, I'm just going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to work hard. I'm not afraid of hard work.
1: I think like it's become almost a cottage industry about talking about founders, Mm -hmm. especially on social media. So like everyone has this like story. Everyone puts founder in their, you know, in their bio. Yeah. And when you start really digging down into what a founder really is, it's what you said. It's this magnetism. It's a can-do attitude with like, I guess is grit. Mm -hmm. And it's just this kind of obsession. I think this is something every founder I ask, like, "What is the thing?" They say you have to be obsessed to the point where not nothing else matters, but kind of nothing else matters.
0: Yeah, blinders almost. Like you, you, you have to get a little bit of blinders, single focus.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I think that what you said about having essentially a sense of ego, like, "Hey, I'm right. This is the thing. I'm not going to second guess myself. I'm going to go. I'm going to go forth and kind of and conquer." I remember when I was in um, grad school. I went and raised like $250,000 to make a feature film. And everyone said I was fucking crazy. And what are you doing? And I just said, I I don't care. I'm going and doing this. I have decided this is the time that I'm going to go and do it. And no one's going to stop me. We went, we got it distributed. It wasn't very good, but um, you finished it, right? And you completed it. And it was very much that no one's going to stop me. I don't care how many hours I have to work. I don't care what anyone has to say about it. This is the right idea was the wrong one, but you learn over time. And, uh, I find the people that are doing it and excited about it have that kind of obsession.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Now I can tell you the opposite side is I tried to overindex on fixing all the things I had done wrong and I was afraid the second time. So like mm-hmm. start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, because I was trying to overcorrect rather than just saying, go get it done and you will figure it out as you go um, because you already have all the things you learned built in. So you're going to make better decisions rather than trying to on paper. By the way, I've seen a lot of other founders just in the tech space try to do this. When they go the second time, they're trying to move all the you know their spreadsheets to make sure that all their models and everything are worked out in their head. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I completely agree with you.
0: Yeah. I think the models for a founder are changing a little bit too. Like I I worked with a lot of hardware companies in the past and then a lot of SaaS businesses now and consumer and a bunch of other industries. And I think there's kind of like a couple different like prototype founders. And then there's ones that are really outside of that. And I get really excited when there's an excellent founder who kind of doesn't fit the mold. And I've worked with a, a a lot, many who do fit the mold, you know, like I worked at Google or Facebook or one of these companies and I have like a some degree from some fancy school. And um, then I, you know, whatever that mold is one mold or I was a consultant or whatever. I was an engineer and then I became a product manager and then I became a founder is kind of like a very common path. But there's some founders I've worked with lately who different path, like self-taught programmer from, you know, a country that he had to immigrate from when he was, or immigrated to, sorry, a new country when he was a kid and like supported his parents. And like, that's a different way to learn grit too and resilience. And so those founders, I mean, another one who this, another founder I met with recently, a a woman with children who like, she was going to do it a different way. She wasn't going to grind out the hundred hour weeks. So I don't know. I think they, there's different molds for being a great founder, but I think everyone has to have a little, a lot of drive, uh, risk-taking, and grit and resilience.
1: Yeah. Also, uh, being a parent is a startup uh, in and of itself. So honestly, if a, a woman came to me and said, hey, I have kids and I'm going to do a startup, I'm like I trust you because you, you already know grit and resilience. I know you're going to know how to get it done and be efficient with your time. So you talked about at your husband's company, essentially being the founding marketer of that team. A lot of brands, or were there other marketers on the team already?
0: I wasn't a founder. Um, there, was no, there was no one else in marketing. It was my husband and his co-founder, who was someone else. He's an engineer. His name's Ed. He was, I think he was like the CTO of Twitter last, and now I don't know what he's doing. He was an engineer. My husband, who had a product management background, everyone else on the team was an engineer. I think there was one designer and me. So that was the team. It was seven. Okay. I wasn't a founder because only Ed and Todd were the founders. I kind of joined. Yeah. Officially later. Yeah.
1: Well, you started the marketing team.
0: The marketing team was me. I mean, we were acquired before the marketing team got bigger than that.
1: Yeah. I talked to a lot of teams who have small marketing teams. They don't. They can't take on the overhead and they're trying to build up to be able to do that. But kind of like they haven't hit that mark. They either are bootstrapped and so they don't have the capital to do it or they're close to raising but they don't have a team so they outsource, you know, agencies and you know, pro- uh, products like Pencil. What do you think a marketing team needs to get started, whether it's in technology or in, you know, in direct to consumer e-commerce? Like what are the things that they should be thinking about that maybe they aren't right now because, you know, they're reading Twitter threads about what they should be doing, but it's actually not what is going to move the needle at the beginning.
0: I think it really depends on the business and it depends on what the founder's strengths are already. So sometimes I work with founders where one of them is pretty good at marketing. When I say marketing, I mean some aspect of it. Maybe it's uh, storytelling or maybe it's paid advertising. Like there, there's a founder who knows one part of it, in which case their first marketer or what their marketing team is going to look like has to supplement what they're already good at. And it will look really different from you know a technical founder who has been writing code his whole life and never thought about marketing or packaging the business in a way that their users would understand. And so it really is kind of company dependent. There are a few patterns that I see, like there's a pattern where company got by either with help from advisors, investors, agencies, whatever, in packaging the brand, meaning it like looks good, the story's clear, the foundation is in place, and they have some happy users and now they just need to like throw some fuel on the fire the marketer they need is going to look different than the marketer who the product is pre-launched, the company doesn't have a name, it doesn't have a website, it doesn't have an identity, it doesn't even really know how it's going to market. And the marketer they need is probably more of like a product and brand strength marketer versus the product that the former example would need would be more of like a growth marketer. So I think it really is kind of company dependent.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really interesting point. I think we all by the way, myself included, we paint with a pretty wide brush rather than kind of taking the context into account and saying like, look, your product and story is amorphous. Like we need to just bring that together and build a solid foundation. One thing I have found, maybe I'm not, I I can't speak to technology because I've been really focused on kind of what's going on with the psychology of of the DDC world, but you would be able to kind of counterbalance what I'm about to say is people get very focused because they're trying to hit a revenue goal to kind of make the cash flow work for themselves. That brand marketing, which I don't think is completely out the door as much anymore. But everyone focuses on growth first, rather than kind of building a foundation of, of brand and knowing how to message. And one thing we talk about at Pencil a lot is kind of, we want to be the bridge. You and I've talked about this before, but be the bridge between brand marketers and performance marketers because they kind of like loathe each other.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not like I hate you as a person, but just you want numbers. I want to make sure that we. I'm a steward for the brand and the message and that people know kind of there is a, say, premium feel to this, to this product. How do you look at that? Because you just said, okay, company dependent. But even on those companies that are company dependent, I've seen it kind of cut in the negative direction where a company is has that brown foundation, but they don't have someone in place to be a steward. They have exactly what you said, where like an agency helped them up.
0: Oh, I see what you're saying. So they hired the agency, they like built the foundation, but now there's no exactly. one to like make, involve it and carry it through and make it show up yeah. in the world. That happens a lot.
1: So what I find is unless the founder is like very dedicated to that, yeah, then it can slip and it becomes something where being only performance driven is kind of a race to the bottom eventually like you're just trying to chase a revenue goal rather than having kind of a standard of delivery. I think it's a very negative and pervasive thing. But I, I'd be curious kind of how you've seen that work and what you think brand should be doing to essentially have a really strong brand foundation that then you can layer growth on top of and not the other way around.
0: Yeah. Um, when you do performance without brand, You are minimizing the total number of users that you can acquire because it's only the people who are going to convert at kind of already in the bottom part of your funnel. Whereas when you invest in brand first, you're actually increasing whether it's awareness or you're bringing people, you're giving yourself air cover for your performance marketing. And you're giving yourself impressions where you can show up and understand like a little bit about who this brand is before you get the direct conversion ad. And so I think like the distinction between brand and performance, like when I worked at Square, um, there wasn't even a marketing team. So like my title was like something weird. But my right hand person, like we work together a lot, still friends with her. Her name's Heather. She came from Netflix and she's a direct response marketer. She did a lot of the Netflix stuff, like the direct mail that you get from Netflix and like the offers. And she's the analytical marketer, but she knew enough about product marketing to be dangerous. And I knew enough about performance marketing to be dangerous. And we were a great, like we worked really well together. And then she ended up having someone on her team, I'm also still friends with who was like an analyst. He was like a quant guy came from the gaming world. And so between like the three of us, it was, it was a good coverage of like all of that stuff. And ideally that's, you want your marketing team to be like that. Now you said, you know, a lot of these early stage companies, they can't hire three people or two people or whatever to, to get all of that. And I think the best performance marketers, there's another guy I worked with at Square who's great. He was most recently like head of, um, head of marketing at Aura. And so that's a, that's a company that does like pretty good brand plus performance, although it it started just being performance and then they realized that to invest in the brand. So I guess to answer your question, I think the two are coming together more and there are people like Nick Sharma talks about like performance brand and like, you know, there are people who are starting to see like, you got to get your story straight. You got to stand for something. You got to tell people the why you got to make them understand your functional benefits And then you got to take them through your funnel and help them convert in all these different channels and all these different ways that play together. And I think like that is how marketing should be. Um, There are companies that index way too high on just doing the paid stuff and not having I would almost call it like a soul or a brand or any any of that, not being clear on what they are. And then there are companies that index too hard on they have a beautiful brand, but like the numbers don't add up.
1: I think that's a like an important thing for for people to understand is. The way I've been I'm pitching it internally, because we've kind of done this, I can talk to you a little bit about this and see what you think. But if 2,000 people in the world have ever used Pencil, just pulling a number out of, out of the sky, and there's, say, in the serviceable addressable market, there's a million people. That's 998,000 people who don't know about us, have never used us, have no relationship. And so we've got to find a way for them to feel good about us. And then there's obviously the rest of the kind of TAM, which will you know eventually be kind of ready To come into pencil, so like let's just say that's five million. So a bunch of people that we can interact with that are not going to come use our product right away, and don't have any idea out of besides that functional portion, which we can go hammer performance marketing with. But that's where content and brand come in. And so we made a shift maybe like six months ago to invest in kind of being more human with our content and our branding, which led me to your to your course. And like we've seen like the pipeline go kind of crazy just based on that. And it's like people, some people are just being browsy. Right, uh, that's totally fine. That doesn't mean that's not a bad thing, but we've seen kind of intent skyrocket, and it's predicated on very much that. Okay, hey, look, this is how we help people. These are the pe- kind of people that we help. Here is information. We want nothing from you, and this is what we believe and what we stand for.
0: Come along with us if you want to. Yeah,
1: come along with us. And so we've seen our newsletter grow. We've launched this podcast. We see it grow. What happens now is I don't. Besides. Asking you, I don't ask people to come on anymore. People DM me and say, I want to come on. And that has nothing to do with anything except just brand. That's a brand, right? I like what you stand for and what you guys are talking about and how you're helping people. And so we want to be a part of that. And I think it's it's a really interesting, for me, just mini case study in once you stand for something, everything else flows out of that. And you're able to build stuff. It's helped us kind of with all the other paid stuff where we can say, okay, now we know these are the things that we need to invest in. It's helped us with roadmap a lot, which I think is really interesting. I've seen this now. So I'm talking, we're talking about tech, right? So I've seen this on the D2C side though, where there's a company called Avi. The CEO is on episode five, they're a collagen company. They have a Facebook community of about 65,000 people. They're able to source because they've said our brand is about you. We want to Give you amazing experiences that are tied to health, not just your standard college and brand where you take a scoop, put it in. We want you to feel like you're part of the brand. They have incredible engagement with their brand. They drop flavors that are based on like, you know, voting, et cetera. And you see kind of people hungry for that kind of engagement. And so, my, I guess, my whole hypothesis around this is if you stand for something, which I think is we're we're aligned on this, is if you stand for something. And you direct it in the right way, it becomes the tip of the spear for you that you can then kind of accelerate with all those growth and you know all those other tactics and strategies that go along with it. But if that's if the other side, if that's kind of your business, it will never. There's an upward bound to what that can do. So I know I just went on a bit of a soliloquy there, but I completely agree with you.
0: No, no, you're saying there's an upward bound to what just doing brand and content work will do, or just doing performance.
1: I think there's an upward bound to both. Mm -hmm. I think what happens is brand is an accelerator for growth. Growth is not an accelerator for brand. That's right. Because you can't have growth because it's growth is rocky.
0: I think growth is capturing the demand for the most part that's already there. Yeah. Whereas brand is creating more demand.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Uh, There's a brand I worked with for a long time. I, I helped them with their early positioning and It's called Bowery. It's an indoor vertical farm out of New York. um, And they make packaged salad greens. I can still not buy the packaged salad greens from Bowery because I live in LA and they're not even distributed on the West Coast. But I still love this brand. And one of the things early on that the CEO and I had talked about was like, we want to build national awareness we want to do national media, we want to create demand ahead of our distribution so that when we have a farm on the West Coast and we're available in Whole Foods or your local grocer, there are people who already know about us and are waiting for us to get there. But we also need to like sell through the you know perishable goods that we're bringing to actual stores in the markets where we do distribute. And when they first launched, it was just New York. Now they're in a bunch of different markets. So there's really interesting like we're going to do national brand and local, what you would call like growth or paid acquisition. Yeah. Um, And, and having that tension of like, we're trying to build this big brand for the future. And whether it's the content or the PR strategy or that, whatever they're doing on a national level, but then on a local level, we're actually going to execute like pop-ups and events and couponing or whatever it is, uh, demonstrations in store, which we would never do in a market where we don't exist. That's an interesting example of just like how to think about brand and growth together. Thinking of that
1: example, specifically, I've done growth campaigns where essentially it's for local markets, right? And those don't work as well as kind of, I think the reverse of what you're talking about. And it's because you haven't essentially built up the demand that can be captured by the growth. And so, like, that's a kind of my counter example is what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And people can engage with the brand over time. If they say, like, hey, you know, for instance, if Bowery, not that I know this, but they start putting out recipes. I haven't bought anything Bowery, but I'm using Bowery recipes with the stuff that I do have. So, the minute they say, hey, Bowery is going to be available in Topanga Canyon, let's go. I'm going to be there like that day because I've had now multiple interactions. And so I'll give an example of um, Reforge, right? They send out content all the time on LinkedIn, Twitter. And so I'm not taking anything right now, but I'm like thirsty to go and take another another class. I've read an article that I'm like, oh my God, I need someone to make me feel dumb because this makes me feel really dumb. And in a good way where I'm like, I need to go learn from these operators on how to actually action this and what are the frameworks I need to implement. And I think it's similar with a brand. You want to feel like they can help you go somewhere that you can't go on your own. What's something that people aren't doing right now that you have found still yields like very strong results that no one is focused on right now in marketing?
0: The fundamentals like of getting your story straight. I mean, it's so simple, but it just pays so many dividends. And almost every time I get inbound from a company that needs help, whether it's first round or otherwise, they need help with something, whether it's, I need a PR firm I'm about to announce. I wanna spin up Facebook ads or these days, no no one's asking about that. I want to spin up TikTok ads <laughs> TikTok or you know, ads, whatever. yeah. But like whatever the thing is. And I go, okay, cool. Can you tell me about the company? And they tell me about it. I'm like, mm, good luck with that launch or that TikTok ad. Like this makes no sense <laughs> yet. And so we almost always come back to fundamental stuff. It's the stuff we went over in the class. You know, what's your purpose? What's your position? What's your personality? Once you have that stuff really well articulated all that other stuff just becomes easier. It's like, oh, you want to brief a PR firm who's going to help you with like local stuff or trade stuff or whatever it is. Here, you have the story to hand to the PR firm instead of reinventing the wheel every time.
1: Do you think this is because the founder profile, like say it's that standard, I worked at Google, I'm a PM, I'm thinking tech, I was an engineer beforehand, or Do you think it's because you have essentially wrapped yourself up just on a general level in the emotion that you can't untie kind of your story from what the actual story is? Because they're two different things, right? The real story is inside of your story, but your story isn't the story. So what do you think that is for founders in general?
0: Yeah, I think most of it is myopic vision. You know, I'm so close to it that to me, this makes perfect sense. But try to explain it to like a bored but smart teenager, And your explanation makes no sense. And so really just distilling your story, simplifying it, taking it to the essence of like, what is this? And this is what makes good ads too, right? Like, it's like, what are the benefits? Is it clear? Did it hook me with what the problem was before? It's like basic stuff. But, you know, if you have that really crisp and clear, everything becomes easier. You know, ads start writing themselves once you get that. You You can play with the words and make it fun and have personality, but really getting down to you know basics there's a founder i'm talking with right now he he can do a great job explaining his product in 30 minutes but give him 30 seconds not so good and he's basically like wants to hire me to help him take his 30 minute pitch down to a 30 second pitch and i'm like cool if we can get it to 10 seconds we're doing well you know like people's attention span is short yeah we're all busy we're bombarded with advertisements we're bombarded with brands we're i'm I'm super brand loyal and not super into trying new things. So I actually make like a really hard to convert user, but I, I do try new things when the story is compelling enough and it has to be compelling enough in like an Instagram ad. Yeah. There are brands that do this really well. Like I'm thinking about like brands I've tried recently. Some of them do do that like thing where it's like the Mattel Barbie house is so amazing. You get in, it it's like kind of not that amazing. I've been a victim of that, I guess, too many times.
1: Oh, yeah. I think we all have, right?
0: Yeah. And there's this thing where if your marketing's so good, but your product's not good, that's the trap, right? It's like the Mattel Barbie house or the hamburger with the sesame seeds that are placed with the tweezer. And then there's the other side, which is like, I I tend to work more on this like technical side where the product is actually like really amazing, but the marketing sucks. Um, And in D2C land, it seems to me like you often have the other problem, which is like the marketing's amazing, but then you get the product and you're like, it's fine. I'll go back to the brand I was using before.
1: I think you're you're definitely right, especially uh, in the OG days a few years ago of um, drop shipping, It was like really bad, where they could get their marketing in a really good space, and then the products like the, the owner had never even seen the products uh, of the brand, and so you get in, and you're like, what the hell is this? I think one I've been I've been converted to from an ad to their landing page to a customer now loyal customer was Athletic Greens. Their ads are very good. Their brand is really slick. It feels high end. And the product has like, it's been great. I really, I've been really digging it. I would say the number one thing I've been telling everyone. So if anyone's listening to these episodes, they're going to be like, I see Chase started using this.
0: I think they sponsored Lenny's podcast that came out yesterday. They did.
1: Yeah. Like my sugar cravings have gone. And they said that that would happen. I was like, like, yeah, bullshit. Uh, I call bullshit, but let's just try it to see. Absolutely. Within a week, I was like, oh man, I don't want any of this stuff.
0: And so that's the side. So those drop shipping companies, all they cared about was your one order. Like they're only were caring about acquisition and like how how much did we sell this week? They didn't care at all about retention because you were certainly not going to order again from a company that disappointed you. Whereas the companies where the marketing's really good, they get you off an ad, it sounds too good to be true. You try it. It fulfills the expectation. You're becoming an ambassador and like your lifetime value is going to be amazing. And you're K factor is going to be amazing too. Like, you know, it's just those are the brands that are really cool. And those brands take not just a growth marketer and a brand marketer. They actually take the idea, the founders and the whole company has to be aligned into that's what we're doing. We're not, you know, emperor's new clothes over here and we're not amazing product with shitty marketing. The whole thing is real. And those are the those are the companies I get excited about as like a
1: customer i think that's a that's a really important thing to even drill down on because i tell this to everyone in our team and anyone who i consult with or advise customer success is not just a customer success problem it's everyone's problem the engineering team is a customer success team the marketing team is a customer success team and similarly the entire team is the marketing team right if the product isn't good like k-factor forget k-factor like we're gonna have negative nps and they're gonna be bad reviews on you're gonna
0: have returns yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) exactly i wonder how you have seen or helped people get aligned because not that no one's gonna disagree gonna say like no i don't care about marketing but a lot of times i've found some teams aren't interested they want to just do their own thing they don't want to kind of be thinking about this and marketing strangely is an afterthought continuously when you're building, when you're building products. I think obviously D to C you're thinking about it like right away. Cause like, okay, I got to get this to market. I got to get people, I got to run my Facebook ads and my TikTok ads and et cetera. And so it's much more kind of prevalent and upfront versus in technology. It's like, oh, I just got to make this thing work so that if someone clicks on it, it doesn't break completely without kind of thinking, well, after that, what do I do?
0: Yeah, so there's a whole technology. This is like old school Google. They used, to, you know, the field of dreams thing. If you build it, they will come, and like if you build a great product, people will come, and that is true in some regard. But those people have to be aware of it. They have to know where to find it. They have to have their expectations set. Then they have to use it and understand how it works. Like, there's so much more to it than just like build it and they'll come. I think that is a uh, myth that's very prevalent among like technology circles. But there's also something true, which is like, if you built something really fucking awesome and some people happen to come because either you let them know about it, or they were your first thousand users or hundred users who were, you know, a very niche audience that they will spread the word and then more people will come. Um, and so there's a little bit of like a, oh, we don't do marketing. Like, oh, we haven't even turned on marketing yet. And it's like, well, how did you get your first thousand users? Like there, you know, there was a way that you did it. Yeah. So I don't buy that when people say like, we don't do marketing. I get like, we don't pay for ads. That's fine. You could say that. you you know There's a bunch more growth that's left on the table because you haven't experimented with that. But if you haven't done any marketing, like you don't have a business yet.
1: Yes, that is the spicy take that we're going <laughs> to... That's going to be the title of this episode. You said something really interesting right now, which is people will say we haven't turned on marketing yet. It's all organic. My counter always to those people is like, well, you posted it on LinkedIn and your CTO posted it on LinkedIn and that's marketing. Or you had an advisor who has a bigger LinkedIn or Twitter following and they posted it and they checked it out. So I can personally say like, if you know the, the noise cancelling software, CRISP, which every parent should have.
0: You told me about that as your product recommendation in the class. I yeah. told
1: you, yeah. So I, I am the viral coach, yeah. <laughs> but it's predicated on, I saw it on a post. And they're like, hey, it has helped me with my kids at home. And it was, uh, it was Elena posted about it. And I'm like, well, if she says it's good, I'm definitely going to go use that. And I'm not saying they haven't turned on marketing, but let's just say that's a case where their founder came and said, no marketing. It's like, well, you have a, a growth influencer, essentially, who people listen to implicitly because she's brilliant.
0: Well, and you have a website and you have a checkout flow and you, I mean, you have so much, you haven't turned on advertising. I can buy that.
1: Okay. So then that's the distinction, right? You haven't turned on advertising, but you do have marketing because if you have done any work to have a logo, have a name, have a website, checkout flow, email flow, all of this is marketing. If you have anything in product, which is trying to get upsells, like this is all marketing and product, you know, all of these things working, um, together. We're kind of digging into the, the psychology of why marketers ha- struggle with, with other teammates. And I think it's a, it's a fascinating one because you're on the forefront of doing this with people. Why do you think marketing essentially gets a bad rap with people? Because it, it really does. Let me put this out there and then I'll, I'll mute myself so you can actually answer. Why is it that if a marketing person wants to talk about product, they're like, "Though, chill out. But everyone has an opinion on marketing everyone.
0: So this happened a lot at like the tech companies I worked with before where the engineer would definitely have an opinion about whatever I was doing. But if I told him or her how to code, that would be nuts, right? So I think the reason is that marketing is so much closer to a human experience that we all have had, that we all feel a little bit like experts at it. We all read ads. We all see ads. We all use products. We all read content. We all are on Instagram. We all, it's part of our lives. I took one computer science class as an undergrad because it got me out of a math requirement that I didn't want, but it was not for me. I understand that there are lots of people who are great at it. I know that's not for me. And since then, like my exposure to code is very minimal, but the engineer's exposure to marketing is not as minimal. And so when it's just part of daily life, everyone can feel like an expert. It happens a lot with like copywriting and design too. I think that, you know, we all see things, we have opinions about what we like and in in the design world. And people are always joking about how clients make, you know, design worse, not better. Like the designers feel that way. Yeah. So, you know, make the logo bigger, make it brighter. The button's not big enough. Yes, I think that is kind of at the fundamental level. It's just we all experience marketing, and we do not all experience code.
1: Yeah, that's a. I think that's an important way to to look at that, and maybe have more empathy for the other side of the house when they do have that. I think that's the maybe most important thing I am going to take away from that is, hey, everyone is experiencing marketing. We're experiencing code, but we don't see it. It's different, right? So I think about it because I am thinking about product experiences for users. So like, but. There's how many users daily active users are there on Instagram, right? How many of them are actually thinking about those kind of experiences in that way? It's it's like a tiny percentage.
0: But if you think about it as a language that you and I and maybe other people were fluent in this language, I mean there are areas of it that I know better than other, but we're like fluent in the language. And these people that you're talking about at your company that you might be butting heads with, yeah, they are not fluent. Like they may be conversational in the language, and so there is a time and a place to be like. Thank you for your feedback. I got this. And there's also a time and place to listen because, like, maybe it makes sense and maybe it doesn't. And I've had good ideas come from engineers. It's like, you know, they're few and far between, but it happens for sure.
1: I completely agree with you. How do you feel marketing is changing and the acceptance rate, I guess, of marketing? Like, is there something you've seen a sea change over, say, the last year, year and a half in terms of how people are marketing? Or is it kind of like a tried and true, this is rinse and repeat, we're doing it the way we've done it for the last five to 10 years?
0: I think there's always shifts happening. I mean, some shifts over the last year, a lot of it has been that people were extremely reliant on using Facebook for their ads and Instagram for their ads. And they could grow into the business and hit those revenue targets that they wanted purely off of that. And now they're realizing that they don't have those lovers in the same way. And so they're looking for new ones. And whether the new one is you know, TikTok or content or reinvestment in brand, you're seeing a lot of that in the consumer world. In the B2B world, I'm seeing a lot more interest in creating a brand that doesn't look like a you know, boring... This has happened over more than 18 months, probably in the last 10 years.
1: Mm.
0: B2B companies want to be like Square and Slack and some Discord and some of these companies that they're... Well, I guess not really Discord, but like they want to feel like a consumer and they want to be, they want to have an identity and it's not all blue and serif fonts anymore. And, you know, it doesn't need to be your state, your your enterprise product that looks so boring and it was sold to the IT director of some Fortune 500 company who chose that product because it was the safest choice. But it may be a, individual user who chose that product because it was actually really good and the brand was interesting to them and the product delivered something interesting and then it grew into a big enterprise account. So in the B2B world, a lot more like product-led growth, a lot more investment in brand, a lot more like consumerization of enterprise. And in the B2C world, I would say uh, less reliant on those individual paid advertising channels.
1: On the B2B side, just because I'm in that and we think about this a lot, I've kind of pushed on people to say like, look, PLG has forced people to become consumer brands um, because they have more users that can come in and, and start leveraging products a fraction of the cost that they used to be able to. And so there's a huge pressure in a good way, by the way, put on the brands. Um, and I'm not even talking about the product, but the brands around the product to actually deliver a unique and interesting experience. I guess I'm asking you just yes or no. Do you think PLG has kind of helped push that into the four because I've always, I say to a lot of consumer brands, you need to go look at what B2B is doing in education and how they educate their customers and pull that in. And same thing I say to tech companies, B2B companies, like go look at how people are interacting with their customers. You need to do that. And essentially now it needs to be an intersection of if you're a company, you just need to be a, a good company and take what you can from over here and take what you can from over here and synthesize the two things. You essentially answered my question, but I'm just more making a statement to say, yes. I think it has really <laughs> become a lot more a big part of it. I think a lot about like, the pressure you put on the business in a good way. And so, for instance, you were just talking about Facebook ads and the fact that it put pressure on a lot of people's businesses. Now, you know, we we make Facebook ads and TikTok ads. so I want people to spend all their money on those things. But stepping back, them not working or reporting, not not working, but the reporting not being there put a lot of pressure on people to figure out other things, which they probably should have done beforehand. And it should, they should have had a bigger mix of how they were actually going to market with their product and monetizing the demand that, that was there or creating demand. How do you think about like the pressure that say brand puts on product or growth puts on brand or brand puts on growth? Do you think that, they can work together in harmony? And how often have you seen that happen? Because it it can be pervasive, right? They like can be at odds and it not be a good thing for a company. But when I found the things work together really well, the company just like that. So I'm curious kind of how often you've seen that and maybe what things you think people can do to like communicate better to make that a a good relationship.
0: Yeah, the tension between Short-term growth and long term investment in brand, which will ultimately lead to better long term growth, is almost always there for any company. Even the best companies where it works together works really well together, it's there. I think it's kind of almost like the tension that like finance and marketing have too. Like finance is like don't spend, don't spend, don't spend marketing, like spend, spend, spend. It's like a healthy t- or like my husband is like he's like a spender trier. He's like always trying things. And like, there's always Amazon boxes like arriving and all these other like golf things arriving at our house all the time. And I am like a minimalist who's like, get rid of stuff. What can we donate? What can I sell on Poshmark? Like, let's get rid of stuff. And it actually is a nice balance. Like my house would be super austere and his would be like a hoarder. And instead we have like a normal house. And so I think that tension is somewhat healthy obviously like marketers would want it one way and finance people or you know whatever there's like everyone wanted their own way but ultimately it leads to probably like a better company that tension where i've seen it work really well there's still been the tension for sure but where i've seen it work really well i think square did a great job of this like investing in brand investing in brand doing stuff that like wouldn't show short-term roi but also being very excellent at paid marketing when i was there they just started doing this but i've seen it uh, since leaving, they put out these like amazing films that profile certain Square users that aren't super promotional, but they get really broad, wide distribution. Cash App just put out this amazing piece that was like, it was it was really good. It was like the intersection of, of brand and performance. And it has Ray Dalio and uh, Kendrick Lamar explaining investing for the long term, <laughs> slow money is what they yeah, call it. Yeah. And like, it's totally a brand piece, but at the same time, it's like, oh yeah, I should reactivate. Like I have Cash App on my phone. I don't use it that much. Like, oh, maybe I'll use it again. Like it reminded me. Um, And so the best advertisement that is like remarkable, like ads that are the one we talked about earlier with the Coinbase and the QR code, that was brand and performance. Yeah. The best ads, the ones that we remark about are actually both, in my opinion. That answered one part of your question, but not the second part. Where do I see it working best? I see it working best. There's always this tension. I see it working best in companies that believe not every ad is going to be a direct conversion event that leads to acquisition at this cost, but we're willing to invest some amount in like air cover to make those direct response ads more profitable.
1: So that is a small portion of people. I would say like the majority of conversations and by the way this is not a bad thing everyone has to run their business and make it make it happen in the way they have to so caveat emptor to what I'm about to say most people say I need this CPA I need this payback period and it needs to have this kind of projected LTV on it and it has to happen this week mm-hmm. and if this dad doesn't work let's just use Pencil as an example pencils not a good product it's an algorithm that's guessing based on some behaviors That this group of people that it's targeting are the right people. Maybe if it doesn't have a good signal, you just iterate again and try to find those things. So it has a good message and you're finding the right people and it works together like that tension you're talking about. And so I guess what I would push people to do is what Arielle talked about is both things working together can give you a conversion, but also give you air cover. And you need to understand that the ads are meant to do both things simultaneously. And that's the best advertising. I mean, we're still talking about the, the ad. I, I posted a, I don't know, like I wrote a sub stack with uh, the, the Waza ads. Um, cause like, you know, I still think about those ads. I don't drink Budweiser, but those ads are locked in my head because of they, how they made me feel. That's a performance ad that 15, 20 years later, like the reason I would get Budweiser is cause I remember that ad, not because I'm in the mood for a bud. I think you're, yeah, you're totally dead on. And now we shall transition to anti-rapid fire very quickly. Where do you get your best ideas?
0: Depends what kind of idea, but one place, um, I do a lot of naming, naming of companies. And um, that's one of these things where you can't just like sit down and come up with the name. It's like, it will just come to you at some weird time of the day. I, when I'm working, I actively working on a name, I have to keep a notepad or my phone on my nightstand because I will wake up in the middle of the night with an idea or the shower also, um, so with, with naming, it's like random, you know, middle of the night shower. It just like strikes, or I'm reading an irrelevant book, like a different book. I'm a big library nerd. I check out books from the library. My kid, one of my kids reads a ton. I was like buying all these books that he would read once and then his didn't fit on his bookshelf. I'm like, what am I doing? Went back to the library. We are avid library users now. And I read to him at night, I read for myself. And sometimes you like see a word in a book and you're like, that would be an amazing name. So reading also um, really helps with naming.
1: And you're, since you're a library user, you're not necessarily doing a Kindle or an iPad. You're going, you're going OG paper.
0: No, I read actual books. Yeah. OG paper. I spend so much time on my phone and my computer for work that I want my like pleasure reading to feel different. And I still like, like the smell and feel of Library books or hardcover books.
1: Well, Dr. Huberman um, from your alma mater would tell you that uh, it's good to do that anyway because the light messes with with your circadian rhythm. So,
0: yeah, I've heard that. I got those glasses, but I never wear them. These ones, you know, like the- yeah,
1: yeah, the blue light glasses. Mm-hmm. I got them too, and my wife was like, "You don't need glasses. You look like um, you look like a schmuck."
0: Really? I wear them so infrequently, but my son told me like I looked funny, so I don't know. What do you think? It's like very. They reflect so much. I don't. I don't like that.
1: Uh, that's that's the blue light thing, right? If you had regular glasses, yeah. my wife got new glasses, and she's like, I can't use them because they'll see my second screen. And if it's a meeting where I'm not listening, and they'll see me on Poshmark. Like we can't we can't have that. So uh, she's like, I'm not using these glasses. She actually got new glasses because of that. Hope no one from her company is listening to this. Um, she did that at the old company, not this company. Second question: What is your superpower, like the, the skill that has served you best in life?
0: I know a little bit about a lot of things. And so that helps with the uptake. I work with eight companies at a time at first round. I have 25 companies when I do a Maven course, and then I have a few on my own elsewhere. And I can have a meeting with someone, understand what their business is, know enough about the industry to like be like, okay, I get it. Whether it's you know healthcare, hardcore technology like machine learning, you know AI type stuff, B two B SaaS, consumer, I can I can I'm quick on the uptake.
1: Can confirm this to be true. What's the best piece of advice you've ever
0: received? Let things go. I'm really bad at letting things go. I'm working on it. I tend to be a micromanager if I'm managing people. I really have to work hard to not be. I tend to be a controlling partner, mother, etc. I have a high bar for myself, but it translates into having a high bar for other people, which often it's kind of goes back to that Mattel Barbie thing. It leads to disappointment. Yeah. And it's a, not a great way to go through life having your expectations constantly unmet and then having resentment for it. So letting some stuff go where it doesn't matter. Like my this is a stupid example, but like my husband, um, when he's home with the kids and I have like a work dinner, a friend dinner or something, like he always orders in and it's like not something healthy. And when I'm home with the kids, I make like farmer's market vegetables and like pasta and chicken and like, it's like a very well balanced. Yeah. And I'm always like, he's fucking mailing it in. Like, what kind of dad is this? And everyone's like, let it go. He like watched the kids and ordered something on Uber. Like, it's not a big deal. So that's an example, letting, thing- letting more things go. That example cuts deep. So close to home. Yeah.
1: <laughs> very close to home. I, I commiserate with both you and your husband. My wife said, you know, if you were my if you were my babysitter, I would have fired you a long time ago.
0: <laughs> and you're not, right? That's the thing. Like dads don't babysit. Dads are parents too.
1: Yeah. I totally, totally understand that. Also, bless you for, you know, doing the market vegetables. Your kids are very lucky. But okay. I also think when you're like, hey, I'm going out for dinner, they're like, Oh, yeah, dad's going to get us something sweet.
0: Well, that's the thing. They're like, oh, we get McDonald's. I took them this week. Yeah. McDonald's did this promotion with Pokemon. Um, they're making these really cute, like Pokemon Happy Meal boxes, and they actually have cards inside. So I saw this on Twitter. I was like, I got to tell my son. I showed him the picture, and where did we go to dinner that night? McDonald's. Yeah. I didn't eat it, but my kids both had Happy Meals. They were so happy. Yeah. Because it's not an everyday thing, you know, and they love that shit and let them enjoy. Like that's an example of me letting go. In my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, they had chicken nuggets and French fries and juice for dinner. This, But it's like one night. Who cares?
1: Yeah. If the poison is coursing through their bloodstream right now. Yeah. It's I, already I think, out. <laughs> yeah. Letting letting go is like, I think that's such an important thing. So uh, thanks for sharing that. And then I guess the, the last question is if you met you or someone like you, you know, graduating Stanford back in the day or anyone, what would be the one thing you would tell them that they don't learn in school that they should invest in early on?
0: That's one that it's like four things came into my mind. So now I have to pick one.
1: Oh, tell four. Four is great. Give the, I'm here for it.
0: I would say communication is one, like being a good communicator in written and spoken language no matter what you do in your life is going to serve you well. Um, number two would be do everything you're going to say that people expect of you, like everything that was in your job description, every, do what you need to do to do a good job at your job, and then do like one extra thing. And that will take you far in your career. And then the third one, would this is for me again, I'm like one of these like high expectation individuals, like chill out a little, it's going to be Okay. Uh, I, you know, I graduated school in 2003, which was a time where it was really bad. It was hard to get a job. I knew I didn't want to be like a consultant or a banker, which is like all the jobs that came to recruit. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to go get a PhD in psychology. And then I did a master's and realized it was so much research and so slow and like five people in the world cared about what I was studying. And that was just not for me. So That path that we talked about, like my career path, which it had a lot of other like little funny parts to it, but it works out if you do the first two things, which is, are you a good communicator and do you do a great job at what you're supposed to be doing and go a little bit above that path will take you places and you can, you know, you have to do the work. But like you kind of also have to be open to crazy things. I told this story on another podcast, but like I make jewelry as a hobby. Mm -hmm. And when I was at Google, I sold my jewelry in like a few different galleries in LA and San Francisco. And like I did holiday craft fairs and stuff. It was like a hobby. It wasn't really like, you know, lucrative, but it was fun. I, I always loved making something and then seeing it out in the world like that a stranger would want it. Like that's so cool. Yeah. I had like an Etsy store and stuff. Anyway, so I used a square reader that I had gotten at a craft fair and it was like amazing. Like I sold more, people liked it. It was so easy to use, whatever. And I emailed two people I knew were at square and said like, I used the square reader at this craft fair. It was awesome. And they were like, come interview. And so like that being open to like, wasn't thinking about going there. I was thinking about making a change, but like, that was such a weird path that opened, but it, came because those people had worked with me before and knew I was good at my job. And then they knew I understood the small merchant because I had been one. It was all like, the, you open your own doors and then some doors you just have to pay attention to them opening for you.
1: First of all, that's a great story. Second, I need to know where this jewelry is.
0: <laughs> it's like barely exists anymore. I need to get back into it at some time.
1: It's funny how those things like, uh, that are completely unrelated to your work, how much they calm you. I've been getting into like gardening mm-hmm. recently, even though it's hot as hell outside. And it's so soothing because it has nothing to do with anything that I think about.
0: I also think there's something, so for me, it's cooking now. And like, there's something very tangible about gardening, cooking, jewelry making, like even like needlepoint and all these like weird things, ceramics. A lot of people are into pottery. Doing something with your hands in the real world for all of us who've been on Zoom for three years. And like we work in bits and bites and we see each other in these flat you know, interactions, there's something real about doing something like that. That's just, it's nice. It's a, it's a good yeah, break into the real world.
1: Well, this is our uh, call to arms for people to do more tactile things in their free time rather than just scrolling on their phones. Um, Ariel, this was incredible. I learned a a lot. Um, you helped me kind of get my head out of some of the preconceived notions I had about some things. And I think a lot of people are going to feel the same way. Um, how should they interact with you if they want to kind of, you know, like follow along?
0: Um, I'm semi-active on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm hi. I am Arielle on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and, um, I'm teaching that course again in October. So if you yeah. want to yeah. dig into some of these, you know, get the fundamentals right, the, the product positioning, um, some of the stuff we talked about paying dividends when you're trying to write ad copy and website and press narratives and all of that. If you're a startup founder or marketer, you can apply to my course through Maven. It's called Startup Brand Strategy and it starts in October.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll link it out in the show notes as well. I use what you taught us every day. So I, I would recommend people uh, re- recommend people definitely check it out and uh, take advantage of learning from the goat.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Chase. Well, it was nice to see you. Thanks for having me. I feel like we could just keep talking all day, but like we actually have real work to do and gardening and cooking and all that.
1: <laughs> yeah, we have to go do our jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you have, a, you have a great one. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ad Creative from Pencil. We hope you enjoyed our chat and learned a thing or two that can help you grow your business and think more creatively. If you have someone you think we should interview, just hit me up on Twitter. Also a small favor, if you could please share and review this, we want our guests' amazing insights to reach as much of the community as possible, and your ratings help. Till next time, add some creativity into your life. Thanks.